afternoon and welcome to Taking Ship, a podcast about cultural politics, political culture, and why you shouldn't feed President Trump after midnight. I'm Frank Spring. With me, as always, is Ellie Jacobs, a man who breakfasts on triumph, lunches on very slight defeat, and then bounces back to sup on glory. Hey, Ellie. Hey, Frank. I want to remind our listeners to subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, and encourage them to follow us on Twitter at, at Taking Ship, and that's ship with a P as in principled. Because we are nothing if not deeply, deeply principled. Indeed. Uh, speaking of principled, today we're joined by our good friend Sonia Van Meter. Sonia is the managing partner of Stanford Campaigns, a national democratic opposition research firm out of Austin, Texas. But if you've heard of her, it's likely because of her candidacy with the Mars One Project, a Dutch, bear with me, nonprofit, stick with me still, endeavor to put humans on Mars and leave them there for good. Sonia dreams of two things living on the red planet and turning Texas blue. We're not entirely sure which is more attainable, but we'll find out today. Sonia, welcome to Taking Ship. It is a pleasure to be here, gentlemen. Thanks for having me. Before we dive into uh, some of our specific conversations, I want to kick it off by asking you both, where are we on the Disney scale of terrifying? Somewhere between Bluebird singing on your shoulder and Bambi's mother getting shot. I put us us at Gaston. We're at the Gaston's drinking song stage of terrifying which is, it's a big song and dance that is enormously enthralling and entertaining, but is ultimately done by awful people and is pretty terrible. (laughs) Uh, You know what? I don't really have an opinion on that matter just yet. Um, I think it's still too early to to really identify where we are on the uh, shit sandwich scale. Oh, can I say that? Of course. Oh, yeah. Oh, in terms of... Okay, great. (laughs) Yeah, in terms of... uh... Shit sandwiches on the podcast, (laughs) you'll find Seems appropriate. Uh, yeah, all, all things considered, I think it's it's still a little too early to to really have a definitive opinion on just how how deep and uh, and and terrible uh, the mire is. Um, but I, I like Frank's optimism. Um, you know, I think I think anything that involves singing and dancing can't be too terrible. The alcohol probably helps. Now yeah, you've obviously never seen cats. Okay. <laughs> and on, speaking of speaking of things that that range from uh, from terrible to potentially okay, uh, the news of the day: Trump has picked a or or ordered, as one would off a menu, a national security advisor. Uh, Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster has stepped into the uh, the role that was voided by uh, Michael Flynn when he was uh, when he was forced to resign for what may turn out to have been uh, a little light treason. Um, and the role was refuted, but refused by uh, Admiral Robert Harward, a man who described the role uh, to a colleague as reportedly as a shit sandwich. Uh, oh, so I see a theme here. Yeah, we're yeah. entirely on theme. It's we shit sandwiches for a We suck on shit sandwich. This is Very exactly nice. what happened to us. It's just it's one <laughs> sandwich after another. So, what do you all think about? I'm going to go with Ellie, and then we're going to then we're going to talk to Sonia. Uh, what do you all think about the appointment of H.R. McMaster as National Security Advisor and, and the reaction to that appointment? Well, I, I think it's obviously it's a great appointment. I think anybody in the foreign policy or national security world has come out very much in favor of this. I think having another adult in the White House is fantastic. Um, kind of on a bigger, broader scale, uh, I actually am a little concerned with how excited and complimentary the media and the punditry were over this choice. It kind of worries me that just because he didn't, just because Trump didn't do something that was colossal, colossally ill-advised and did something that was correct, everybody's jumping up and down and saying how wonderful he is. And I worry that that might diminish the bad things when he actually does them. 
Yeah, that seems about, uh, one, seems about right. Sonia, where are you on this? No, I was going to say, just I'm going to echo Ellie here. Um, I, I was relieved when there wasn't an immediate uh, outcry from the left about, uh, or, or from the security community um, about this selection. On the other hand, um, what does it say when your first uh, first choice you know drops out, your second choice says no? Um, I mean, these are these are highly coveted, highly important positions, and I don't I don't know how I feel about the third string here. Um, you know, presumably <laughs> it's it's still solid, but I mean, again, anyone's guess, and I think it's still a little too early to really know. Yeah, that's probably true. I think that the, those are both reasonable points. The, the part of this that has really struck me is. You know, how did we get this has been so inconsistent? Like, I mean, he appoints Michael Flynn, which is basically, I mean, you know, the only worst possible choice for national security advisor than Michael Flynn would be like Pennywise the clown. And, you know, so then and then this guy has then he has to go uh, and then he's replaced. And then, he, you know, they offer it to uh, to Robert Harwood, a very reasonable choice, uh, who, again, describes it as a shit sandwich and turns it down. And then he gets McMaster for it. Again, a very solid, very reasonable choice. Uh, it's been greeted with with uh, some degree of optimism by the by the security community. And I've been trying to figure out, like, how do you go from Flynn to potentially Harvard to, to McMaster? And I finally figured out it's actually a very simple explanation for this, which is Trump can't tell a good general or flag officer from a bad one. He actually doesn't know the difference between these guys at all. And there's, I mean, the, the distinction and competence and, you know, and worldview uh, between Flynn and McMaster is quite strong. Uh, but but it doesn't matter to to uh, Trump, and he can't tell the difference because they're all you know they're all generals and flag officers, and he likes people who, are, who look like they're from central casting. So I mean, in some respects, that is really encouraging because good people can get in there if they look right. And in some respects, it is absolutely goddamn terrifying. Yeah, I mean, he, aside from the fact that he can't tell a good general from a bad general or a good admiral from a bad admiral, he can't tell a soldier from a from a marine. When he introduced uh, Mattis at the Defense <laughs> Department. Uh, right before signing the uh, Muslim ban order, he called him a soldier at the Defense Department. And I mean, those of us, the, the, our friends who are Marines and, and, and Army soldiers, that's like calling, it's worse than insulting your mother to call a soldier, <laughs> or, to call a Marine a soldier. And it, it, I think just it, once again, we're seeing just how ill prepared, unthoughtful, non curious. Reflect reflexively opposed to anything that has come before him, Trump really is. And that's actually what I find to be the most scary aspect. That, that is absolutely terrifying. Sorry. Oh, no, no. I, I, was, I just wanted to throw this in. Um, Ellie, you actually said something the other day that, that kind of caught my attention. Um, you know, you wonder, you know, you've, your first person drops out, your second person says no. Um, so we are kind of, we're going on the second, third string here. At, this, at the same time, we do need people to serve. And, you know, I wouldn't serve under this administration. I, I seriously doubt either of you would. But we still, especially now, desperately need good people to be stepping up. And I think that that's something we have to think about when, when we look at this, at this new appointment. I mean, what, what does it say about this man that he's willing to jump on a very large, very volatile, very, very potentially ridiculous grenade um, on behalf of the American people? I... I Maybe I'm just being optimistic here. Maybe I'm being ridiculously, irrationally optimistic because that's what I cling to these days. Um, but I, I, I'm willing to give him a shot um, because, holy crap, do we need good people? And 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 maybe you know, uh, you know, my people are, are saying he's solid. You know, the, the people that I know in the in in national security are saying he's solid. I'm gonna I'm gonna cross my fingers, hold my nose, and just hope for the best. 
Yeah, I that's think it, it raises a really interesting point, and this is a question I've I've been meaning to pose to somebody. Harwood it was retired. Flynn was retired. McMaster is still active duty. If the commander in chief ordered him to be his national security advisor, I don't know that he could say no. Technically, oh. so I, I don't, I, and I don't know. I mean, not being a military person, I, I don't know what what the trigger is or what the what the rule is. Um, but if that's the case, all the more better that he took somebody who couldn't say no because now you. Have- <laughs> Now you have a fourth responsible person in national security. Um, regardless of what people think about Rex Tillerson, what he did at Exxon, if he was the right pick for State Department, wasn't the right pick, he's clearly a reasonable, responsible adult who can function in the world and actually run a business profitably as opposed to our president who is incapable of doing just that. So you put him together with uh, Secretary Mattis and Secretary Kelly and now General McMaster, suddenly you're looking at a pretty solid national security team Although I think that there is, Frank, I'd love your opinion on this. I think that there's probably reason to be slightly concerned that there are that there is that much current and former military uh, personnel and power running national security. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's this clearly was not what was supposed to happen in the sense that the cabinet was meant to be absolutely flooded with generals and flag officers. Uh, all of that, you know, and, and and this again, I think, just goes back to Trump's fixation with validations from you know power, from father figures and the idea that he can get these kind of like these powerful guys working for him, and they look they look great. They come from central casting and all the other stuff. Uh, all of the other terrible reasons that he chooses people and sometimes chooses great people for the wrong reasons. Uh, I'm also reasonably bullish on McMaster. I love the fact that he has studied and written about the duty of uh, uniformed uh, uh, service members. Uh, to be clear and uh, and straightforward with civilian uh, with civilian leadership and really kind of get a sense. His whole theory of the case, for those who may not know, he wrote a, a great book back in '97 uh, called Dereliction of Duty, in which he talked about the Vietnam War. And his broader thesis was, as civilian leadership over the war started pushing for things that were strategically unsound, uh, there was a choice that the that the military leadership had to make, which was either go along with it. Uh, and you know, accept the order and just do their best, or to really push back and say this is not something we're capable of doing. Uh, and I think to the extent that he advocates for the military military leadership to use to exercise that discretion when civilians are pushing for a military aggression when it's inappropriate. Uh, I think he could be a real force for good. So in that sense, not all flag officers are created equal. But uh, I think the real – I think you know, we, I think we, we'll, we want to get on to uh, some other stuff here. But I will just close with this thought. The real test of McMaster's or indeed anyone's leadership as national security advisor is going to be when there's a conflict with KT McFarland. Uh, that's going to be when, when Trump has to choose – I mean it's true. When Trump, when Trump has to choose between uh, a Fox News analyst and – uh, you know, career, you know, career military uh, as a national security advisor, which way is he going to go? You know, stay tuned and find out. So, you know, I don't I, you know, we'll 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 see that. And I suspect that the that particular piece of rubber will meet the road sooner rather than later. Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, but now that we've paid homage to Caesar, uh, we can talk about the depressing state of the Democratic Party. In particular, <laughs> oh in, per- in particular, I want to ask you both about this new political action committee that got some press over the last week or two. It's called We Will Replace You PAC which was essentially established to punish Dems for helping Trump. Um, so, Sonia, I'll, 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 we'll go to you first. What's the point of this asinine adventure? Okay, so uh, upon learning about this pack, I had a, an 
like a visceral reaction. Um, I wanted to throw things. I wanted to punch things. I wanted to set things on fire. Um, and then I took a closer look at sort of their proposed objectives. And I'm not going to say that I'm coming around, but I will say that the, the vitriol is dying down a bit. Um, it sounds to me, and admittedly, they're a bunch of, of Bernie people, and I have my feelings on Bernie aside. Um, you know, I, I, I appreciate what it is that I think they're trying to do. I don't think they necessarily want to unseat incumbents. Um, I think their objective is to place some pressure on Dems who, um, and, and Democrats love doing this. We love to, we'd love to find the compromise. We'd love to find the middle ground. We, we want to play nicely with everyone. And that has been, you know, for better or worse, sort of the, the hallmark of the Obama administration. Um, but this is, this is where we are now. We're in this incredibly polarized, um, you know, environment, uh, where I don't know that the Democrats can really afford that anymore. And it hasn't, it hasn't served us. It has not served us well at all. You know, the, the right goes farther and farther to the right and harder and harder, uh, you know, on, the, on these hardline positions. And we're still trying to be the adults in the room. And I say we'll as a you know, card-carrying Democrat right here. Um, so it, it really depends on what this pack tries to do. Um, if, if, what they're want, if, they want, if what they want to do is, is harness the energy um, right now, you know, of, of, the, of the Democratic casual voter who shows up once every four years and goes, yeah, you know, whatever, fine. Um, great. If they, if they want to mobilize people a little bit, if they want to, you know, bring some issues to, to light a little more, you know, con- concentratedly, I'm for that. Um, but if they seriously want to go after Democratic incumbents, um, I will be on the front lines of that fight because I'm not having that. The Democratic Party has had enough of a beating um, and we're, we continue to take a beating for a lot of wrong reasons, which I think we're going to talk about later. So I'll hold off on this. Um, long story short, I am willing to give them a chance but fuck with my party at your peril. Yeah. <laughs> Frank, is this just another iteration of sort of the Tea Party, where the Tea Party primary Republicans that they felt were too cooperative or weren't voting their, their line, sort of like, you know, what, what happened to Eric Cantor, for instance? Yeah, I mean, I think that's that, that's clearly the model that we're working off of. And it's interesting to see all these different organizations that are popping up using elements of the Tea Party playbook, because it was really effective. Uh, and it and, and this goes right to, to Sonia's point that, you know, Democrats are, are because we see ourselves as the party of government, which involves compromise, because progressives see themselves as, uh, and as people who have a somewhat nuanced worldview that can recognize the right even in people that they disagree with, we have a tendency to, to lurch toward compromise early and often, and that, that has not served us especially well. So this, to the extent that this group exists to kind of set the edge and remind us uh, to, to remind incumbents that there's a penalty for for compromise for its own sake, uh, I think there's some utility to that, and that's exactly like what the Tea Party is doing now. The problem, what the Tea Party did, the problem, of course, is the Tea Party had a series of pretty clear pieces of legislation that they were act, that they were agitating against, uh, and a clear world and a kind of clear worldview uh, that is a little bit harder to graft onto democratic politics. Uh, so we'll, and, and also there's a real question about whether this group is capable of assembling the resources they need to, to even fulfill this mission. But I see this as part of a number of new organizations, you know, the, you know, uh, this group, uh, the town hall project, which I think is terrific. Uh, that, that's a, a really great, uh, essentially a, now it's began as a series of spreadsheets and it's become an organizing principle for people to go to town halls of their elected officials and, and get on their case about, uh, the Trump, the Trump agenda, which I think is really a, a great thing for democracy. Uh, and then, you know, uh, the indivisible project rise up the, the arena summits. There are all of these things that are popping up as people try to form the resistance. And I think, this group fits into that, and and the challenge for all of us as a party, 
as Democrats is, Democrats are lousy at, run, at, at putting together and running tables. We're, we're, we have not been historically good at getting on the same page. There are organizations that try to do this, but we're not especially good at it. Uh, and, and the time is, you know, these have been young organizations that are still, young movements that are still finding their way. But the time is fast approaching when we're going to need to move from the organic growth model as in it's a goddamn jungle running wild and everything is just, you know, there's just, you know, it's, it is, you know, it's, it's everything is growing wherever it can find, you know, light and sun and water and soil to a phase of growth that's organic as in a cultivated intended organic garden uh, phase of the resistance <laughs> where we begin to really, uh, and, and some of that means, uh, you know, encouraging some plants to prosper and some of it means weeding. Uh, I'm not singling out any organization for weeding yet, but the time is approaching when we're going to need to start figuring out who really is here to stay and who isn't. And maybe this pack is part of that. Yeah, I'm a little worried that this is like kind of indicative of the fact that there is so much passion and so much energy and so much concern on the on the Democratic and left side that it's at this point still very unorganized. And my concern is that burnout and fatigue is going to set in at some point very, very soon because – Right and now, splintering resources, yeah. too. Yeah, yeah right, absolutely. Right now, Democrats aren't in any kind of position to actually impact any real change. They can filibuster, and that's about it. So when suddenly things don't go their way, and at this point, the only, re- the only thing that has gone Democrats' Democrats' way or, you know, America's way was the, judici- was the judiciary doing their job. Um, but to con- continuously have these organizations pop up, and some are good, some are bad, some are being run professionally— some are not. I worry about when does burn-in set in, and then what? Then what happens? Yeah, I don't have an answer to that. Yeah, I don't know. That, yeah, I don't resounding know. silence. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, right I, now, no. This it's a, it's a legit concern, uh, you know. And right right now, we've got we've got a fair amount of energy, and I think. Uh, but yeah, there is there is you know you can get kind of you know resistance fatigue. Uh, I think that's that's a that's a real danger for us. I mean, we're a long way away from that yet, but but that can happen, and it can happen. It can set in fast. Let me insert just a tiny shred of optimism, though, because in this magnificent shit sandwich that we are currently living, Donald Trump is the gift that keeps on giving when it comes to motivation. Um, you know, a, a day doesn't go by where my phone doesn't buzz with a CNN alert and I don't go, oh, Christ, what fresh hell awaits us today? Um, you know, it's been all of his cabinet appointments. It's been, you know, any executive order he's floated. It's been any absurd idea um, about about uh, you know banning homosexuality or you know or, you know the latest with the with the DeVos um, transgender bathroom uh, bathroom guide guide rules um, you know like he, he can't open his mouth without pissing off the left and hopefully you know the center left as well um, so I, I think there's reason for optimism in, in terms of you know not burning out too quickly because we, we're going to need this you know it, people keep talking about how it's a marathon not a sprint well I, I have a better metaphor I think this is a relay um, because we're all going to burn out at some point there's always going to be a time when you wake up and you go I just can't I just fucking can't with this administration or with this congress or whoever um, and that's okay because all around you are people ready to you know take that baton from you and run with it for a little while um, so despair not I say that's a terrific frame. That's yeah, a really terrific yeah. frame. Yeah, and it's, and I think that's. But you know, talking about who can take the different phases, of, who can pick up the baton, and who can run at different points, uh, you know, I think is a is a good segue into this into our next uh, question, which is, there was a, a about the direction of the of Democrats and you know, as you say, the left, the center left. Like, where is the left going at this point? Like, you know, as we all kind of try and figure out ourselves, figure out who's in this race with us. Uh, there's a good piece in the New York Times. I say good in that it was instructive, 
uh, about the Dems needing to go left uh, as part of their, as you know, as part of our strategy. It's uh, it's from a few days ago, uh, and it's the it's from February twenty first, written by Steve Phillips, and the title is "Move Left Democrats." And the thesis of it is that in that Democrats would be uh, would be fools or would be uh, you know would would should resist the pressure. This is a quote: "Whoever prevails as chairman must resist the pressure to follow an uninformed and ill-fated quest for winning over conservative white working class voters in the Midwest." The solution for Democrats is not to chase Trump defe uh, defectors. The path to victory involves re-inspiring those whites who drifted to third-party candidates and then focusing on the ample opportunities in the Southwest and the South. So basically, the party needs to move left, uh, should not focus on winning back uh, the, uh, the departed white working class in the Rust Belt, that uh, that's the direction of travel here. So this is a and, – and I put this – we put this up as a good exemplar of a school of thought that is pretty strong within the Democratic Party right now. Uh, so, Sonia, what is your view of this? Uh, you know, is, is the – you know, should – is this right? You know, should we be moving away from uh, the more conservative white working class voters of the Midwest and the Rust Belt and uh, looking to white folks who left us for third-party candidates and looking at the Sun Belt? Um, so I'm going to – I'm going to say something kind of unpopular. Um in hindsight, you know, the things that we have found out about the way that the, the Clinton campaign ran their, ran their campaign, um, no, I think this article is absolute hogwash. Um, you know, leaving aside the fact that she actually won the popular vote by, what was it, three million votes? Mm -hmm. People like what she had to say. The problem is that she wasn't saying it loud enough. You know, in hindsight, we know that she wasn't polling and she wasn't doing persuasive messaging in places where the models told her she was going to win by five points. She, her campaign stopped communicating to voters. And that's why we saw this massive drop in, in voters, you know, who had, you know, voted for Obama, you know, once, maybe twice, and then just didn't bother to turn out or voted for Trump. Um, you know, she was, she was the candidate of my dreams for sure, but she didn't need to talk to me. Um, and apparently she wasn't talking where she needed to be talking. So, I don't know that there's necessarily a problem here. I, I worry that my party is trying to overcorrect for something that isn't really the issue at hand. You know, at the end of the day, campaign basics, campaign 101, you know, knocking the doors, talking to voters, you know, that's what gets the job done. And her campaign, bless her heart, was data driven and her, her, her models weren't what they needed to be. And so, yes, we are in this epic, <laughs> use it, I'm going to use it again, this epic shit sandwich of a situation. Um, I would love nothing more than to persuade you know, any Trump voter out there, you know, why I am right and why this decision is so detrimental, not only to their well-being, but to the well-being of the planet. Um, but I'm not sure we're going to get those people. I, I think what we need to do is just keep talking to the Democrats that have always turned out for us. Um, and I think that, you know, if we can learn from that mistake, I think 2018 will be a beautiful time for us. <laughs> Yeah. Ellie, what do you think? I think Sonia touches on an interesting point about, you know, not talking to everybody. Uh, Jason Kander, um, who uh, hopefully will do something again for the Democratic Party because his race in Missouri was uh, a thing of beauty, um, even though he lost just by a few points. Um, considering how badly Hillary lost in Missouri, it's kind of remarkable how well he did. Uh, but he had an analogy a few weeks ago of sort of um, lawyers giving a closing statement in court. And, you know, there's nine people on the jury. First lawyer gets up and he gives sort of broad-based, um, big-issue kind of things that everybody can sort of see as important to the case that he's making. The next person gets up, goes juror, juror by juror, telling them exactly why this specific issue should impact them or why this person should be innocent or guilty because of their own personal beliefs, their own personal past, or where they live, or their demographics. So they, he, he does that for six of the jurors and leaves three of them out completely because they weren't going to be with him anyway. 
And that was this, Candor was essentially giving this analogy that I've sort of butchered as sort of the difference between the Trump campaign and um, Hillary's campaign. And I fear that a tilt to the left, I, I think that there's a false narrative. And, you know, Frank, you and I have talked about this, so I mean, I, we don't need to dive into it completely here. But I think there's a false narrative that if the party doesn't move left, people either stay home or go to a third party. I genuinely don't think that that's reality. I think you need to give people a reason to come out and vote. And moving to the left just to say that you're on the left isn't that isn't that answer. I mean, I think there is. <clears throat> you're right about the false narrative, and I think the idea. I'm a little. I have a little more patience for this idea than 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 maybe the two of you. But I, I think the idea that we can go Clammy. after. Either, yeah, that's yeah, that's <laughs> that's yeah, the glories of the revolution are not forgotten on this podcast. This is what we mean when we describe <laughs> ourselves as centrist Maoists, whatever that means. Uh, the idea that we can either go after the white working class, and I want to take a moment and talk about this because progressives have a tendency to get bogged down on this class thing, and we, you know, we say, well, you know, most of many of Trump's voters were uh, at were at or above median uh, income, and the point about this is not is the white working class is not an economic distinction; it is a cultural distinction. Mm -hmm. uh, the idea that we can go after the white working class or the Obama coalition of uh, ethnic minority voters, of young people, of college-educated women, uh, primarily in the Sun Belt, that we can go after the, the, the one, the Obama coalition that turned out for, for Hillary uh, by three million votes more than uh, the Republican vote turned out for, uh, for Trump. Uh, the idea that we can only go after either the white working class or the Obama coalition is a really a false choice. Uh, I think it's a and dangerous. And I think, you know, as, I mean, we can't, it is true that, the, that, a, that a political party can't be all things to all people. But the idea that you would look at a map and say, you know what we are, you know what we're going to do? We're going to write off uh, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, uh, all of Illinois except for Chicago, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Wyoming, or, uh, Iowa, and Missouri, and just we're we're just going to give those states up for dead because that's where Trump significantly improved over Romney and did throughout most of those states. Uh, that strikes me as politically irresponsible. Uh, and, you know, we're going to do that and, and we're just going to wait for the Sunbelt Coalition to develop in 2020 or 2024 when we start winning Arizona and Texas and Georgia and all these other places, which very well might happen. That strikes me as being politically dangerous and also a little bit ideologically bankrupt in yeah. that you, know, you go to this group of people that have historically been not strong Democratic voters, but enough to win elections and say, you know what, actually, we're going to turn to this group of people uh, who had an idea of what of what the American deal was, of what their lives were like, when, you know, what the pathway to success in America was that clearly has not happened as the result of globalization and automation. We're going to turn to those people and say, you know, we don't have anything to say to you and we don't need you. Uh, that, that doesn't strike me as a, as, a, as a morally clear approach, much less a politically salient one. Uh, and, but I think all of that said, you know, I don't think that is that is something that we do by going far by going far left either. This is not again; it's a false choice to go between the white working class or the Obama coalition. What I think appeals to people like this author and 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 like a lot of folks, what appeals about the idea of a of taking a strong turn to the left, and this this is true all the way over to things like the Democratic Socialists of America, is they have a clear sense of right and wrong. Right. That's that's the virtue of a strong leftist argument: is there is a clear sense of right and wrong, and who is at fault for? And, you know, any of the people, any, any anyone who's been left behind as the economy has improved a post uh, post great recession, which is a lot of people. Um, so, you know, I think that's the appeal of the left is it's a strong theory of the case. And in that sense, the Democratic Party hasn't really had one of those, as we saw. And, you know, I mean, as you know, as much admiration as I have for Secretary Clinton personally and for a lot of the people who worked in her campaign, uh, you know, it was it, her narrative 
And, and the worldview of the Democratic Party that that represents lacks a good villain. Um, and while yeah. we don't necessarily have to subscribe to the idea that there are there is always someone at fault for everything all the time. You know, we don't necessarily need a punitive politics, but you know, we need to recognize that there are. And this, the appeal of Bernie was partly that he had a theory of the case, that he had a villain in Wall Street and big corporations and so forth, and that resonates with a couple of electorates that we really need. And the thing is, as we have seen, that can resonate with the white working class as well. The fact that we have ceded a lot of the anti, a lot of anti-establishment, anti-Wall Street territory. To of all things, the Republican candidate is is a measure of how we've gone astray as a party. Yeah, I think that you know we definitely want to keep moving, but I, I think that there's um, a bankruptcy in ideological purity. Um, you know, there's a great quote I can't remember who said it, but it's essentially um, the zealot sleeps well at night. The moderate is the person who has harried dreams, and to me, that's a lot of it. I mean, if you look at starting in the you know the mid '80s. Um, when the deal the DLC started, and this idea of I mean, Frank, we're going to be talking a lot about what we're going to what we've dubbed alt centrism, but there is reason to modify views and take positions that might be opposed to some sort of lefty ideological purity, where there's a clear villain and there's a clear hero, um, which you do need to win elections. You need a villain. You need a hero. Uh, the trouble is, is that when you create um, impossible scenarios that people suddenly feel beckoned to and then beholden by, if it doesn't work, you lose them for good. The Democrat needs to be a big tent. That's all I know for sure. There's space for everyone in here, and it's just a question of tailoring our message a little bit better. Um, you know, as a, as a raging feminist over here, just to insert this really quickly, um, I know that there are a lot of really progressive, um, white, straight, cisgendered, hetero men out there who, um, you know, really wanted to, to throw all of their weight behind Hillary. Um, but at the end of the day, even they felt like there just wasn't quite a lot of room in the building for them. Um, and, and, you know, I know identity politics is sort of a, a touchy subject these days. Um, but yeah, I mean, this, this, this false sort of um, choice that you that we've been talking about um, couldn't agree, agree more that it's it's a bad choice because um, you know we're the party of inclusion and I think as, I think as long as we stick to that um, and really talk about inclusion of everybody including you know the, the 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 good old white guys that have had our backs you know for for you know a generation um, I think we'll I think we'll start seeing results. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, now that we've definitively determined that the opposition in this country has no idea what it's doing and that we're practically <laughs> screwed, um, let's uh, sail over to the UK. Um, I thought that this was something interesting and I wanted to get uh, Frank's opinion really on this. Um, this week, the UK Parliament debated rescinding the invitation, the formal invitation to Trump for a state visit. Um, Frank, uh, I guess a couple questions. A, is this really a thing? Um, more importantly, how at the same time that this debate is going on just a few weeks ago, Theresa May held Trump's tiny hand to help him up the stairs and up the up the ramps that he's so scared of at the White House. So uh, I think uh, give you a little background for our listeners. I've done a fair amount of work in uh, UK politics as well as American politics, which is why Ellie is bringing this up. Um, I think the interesting thing about this is, uh, you know, the cons- I mean, if you think the opposition in this country is is screwed. I mean, oh boy, have a look at what is going on with the left in Britain. I mean, Britain has essentially become a one-party state, a one-party country, which is completely unheard of. I mean, there's, there's, there is a time, and not all that long ago, it was about six years ago, when there were three credible political parties, uh, seven years ago now, 
uh, three credible political parties in Britain. There's the Conservatives, Labour, and the and the Lib Dems. And now it's basically the Conservatives are are 100% in charge. And this is the a lot of it is a result of Labour having sort of traditional left and and uh, the Lib Dems who sort of form the the two sides of of leftism in Britain, having guided themselves both of them just you know unprovoked off a cliff. Uh, so the Conservative Party is ascendant here, but this is a weird thing because what we are so this you know the this this debate about whether Trump should be invited or not is entirely about whether or not the conservatives I mean the conservatives have enough vote to votes to pass whatever they want to, including to vote down any kind of block on Trump doing a state visit if they choose to. Um, so this is really a, the question of this debate is the fact that it's happening at all or if there's a real tenor to or the tenor of the debate. But what I think is really interesting is, this is what a post-Trump event establishment conservative looks like, because Theresa May was a was a spokeswoman for the Remain campaign. Theresa May was not in favor of Brexit. Um, she is now the prime minister, but Brexit came in last year and essentially blew out, either on the spot or by its uh, consequences, blew out all the old conservative establishment. And I mean, I say old in the sense of the people who were in charge then and and were seen as part of the new guard. So. Uh, David Cameron, uh, the prime minister, undone by Brexit. George Osborne, the chancellor, undone by Brexit. Boris Johnson, uh, the once and future king of the uh, Conservative Party, uh, you know, the, the short odds favorite to become the next prime minister, uh, the next leader of the Conservatives and the next prime minister, uh, undone by himself as a result of Brexit. Uh, Brexit just shot all of these people and, and it left Theresa May in charge. So, Wasn't it's Boris a, Johnson it, more undone by just sheer buffoonery? Well, this is the thing about yeah, this yes, exactly. But buffoonery is the result of Brexit, like colossally mishandled Brexit, and and a large number of other things. Uh, but he is, I mean, that's that's just Boris Johnson for you. Uh, but if you look at anyway, my point is this: like, if if something were to happen with Trump, where he left office or some such, like, this is what our this is what our government would look like. It would look like some you know, traditional establishment people, Republicans in charge, but aware of the fact that they are kind of riding a tiger yeah. uh, that has blown a lot of people out. And they're, you know, they're not, they're sort of sitting uneasily in total control on charge of, on top of a base that they can barely rally and, and may turn on them at any moment. So I think that's the kind of interesting part of what's happening here. And this is what happens when you don't have a, when you don't have an opposition, uh, which is what's happened to the UK. I think that the Democratic Party can come around a lot faster than Labour can. At least, God, I hope so. Frank, you're giving me nightmares, man. That's Stop my that. you know, that's you know, that my work here is done. <laughs> Stop it right now! Come on, I need I need cl clinging desperately to that tiny little thread of of, of of hope is is the thing that helps me get to sleep at night. Um, aside from that bottle of bourbon, I'm now keeping under my bed. So um, knock it off. Oh, you're still keeping it under the bed. I'm keeping it next to the bed. It's, <laughs> easy, it's easier to reach. Uh, Sonia Van Meter, our delightful guest for, for our inaugural show. Uh, we're going to turn to some specific questions about you. And as we mentioned in the intro, uh, you are an opposition researcher. Um, I am. Many of our listeners probably have no idea what that means. Can you explain what it means? And importantly, I think it'll be helpful if you can point to a couple instances that it's that Oppo has been a difference maker in a campaign. Sure. Um, so opposition research is is really just the examination of public records in a person's history. Um, when you, Ellie, decide that you're going to run for, um, you know, mayor of New York, we all know um, it's a which terrible, would be awesome. terrible idea. Oh, come on. Just just run with it for a second. When you decide that you're going to do that, your first call is, of course, going to be to a fundraiser because nothing happens in politics without money. Your second call is going to be to me. I am an op researcher. And here's what I'm going to do for you. 
I am going to examine every available public record um, that could potentially matter in your in your in your race, um, and that find means all everything. The things I hide from my wife. I'm going to find all the th- well. No, here, see, this is <laughs> there's a there's a, a difference between an opposition researcher and a private investigator, and we should talk about that. But yeah, first things important. first, opposition researchers. Um, we look for public records. Um, we look for things like, did you actually go to that college uh, that you say that you did? And did, you, did in fact, you graduate? Um, are you actually a Navy SEAL, like you told that girl in Vegas you know, five years ago? Um, do you actually do the things that you say that you do? Um, do you vote? Do you have um, a criminal history? Do you have relations with um, people in the nonprofit world or the business world or uh, the legal community? We're going we're gonna to look at everything that there's paper for uh, pertaining to your life. Um, and a lot of people think when they hear op research, they think, oh, you know, you're a dirt digger. You're looking for those magical silver bullets. It's going to bring you down. And Lord knows those are fun to find, um, really fun to find uh, sometimes. But more often than not, it's just about knowing what your, what your platform looks like. Um, as with any other uh, endeavor in the world, the more research you do ahead of time, the, the better position you're going to be in. So it's not a question of necessarily unearthing demons or skeletons in the closet. It's figuring out, you know, what your patterns look like. Um, you know, I, I can't tell you the number of times that we've, we've found congressmen who love to scream about how taxes are bad, taxes are bad, I'm not going to raise your taxes, not going to do this. And then it turns out that they haven't actually paid their taxes in five years, and there are liens on them coming out the wazoo from the IRS. Um, you know, op- opposition research and is taxes is are bad never... for them. They are consistent. <laughs> yes, taxes are bad. <laughs> you accuse them of hypocrisy. Taxes they are, are on message. Made them in years. They are on message. Elect me. Yeah, but, but that that's not going to stop me from. <sighs> no kidding, right? Um, well, Trump is a, Trump is a beast unto itself. I mean, opposition research didn't really have an opportunity to work in that race. And you know what? We could dedicate an entire show to how opposition research failed um, in so many respects relative to, to Donald Trump. But for the people that don't have millions of dollars to throw at their own race and who actually like living in this little place that I call reality, um, you know, th- things like that can bring you down. People don't like hypocrisy. Um, they don't like knowing that, you know, the things that you're screaming at them are not, are not themes that they, that they live by. Um, so really it's just a question of making sure that, you know, your, your story is correct, that it's accurate, um, and then it's not going to be brought down by an accidental misstep. Um, you know, so once we put together this, this, this research report on you, Ellie, now that you're running for mayor, uh, we're also going to do a research book on your opponent. And we're going to find every time he's said, done one, or said one thing and done another. We're going to find every time he voted to raise your taxes or voted to cut funding for education or, you know, any of the other myriad things uh, that could potentially come up in an election. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's about knowing who you are. It's about knowing who your opponent is and then figuring out the best way to draw contrasts between you two. Um, now, one of my personal favorites, and I'm not going to name names because I'm discreet, um, one of my favorite races that, we, that we've ever done uh, was in Indiana. Uh, somebody was running for a statewide office. And this person had dealings with um, a credit counseling service that was notoriously, I mean notoriously, preying on uh, vulnerable people and ultimately bankrupting them. When that news broke, and that was it was due to our research, when that story got out and we, when we ran, uh, when we started running um, ads about that, not only did the candidate drop out of the race, he moved out of the state because he was getting such extraordinary heat. Um, 
That's fine. Work. Now, <laughs> it, oh, thank you. Thank you very much. We're very proud. Um, now, you know, in this era of Trump, you know, one would think that a single audio clip talking about how sexual assault is not just funny, but completely and totally acceptable. Um, you know, you, you would think that, that that would have brought him down. Um, but, but, but Trump is, is an entirely different beast altogether. So, um, you know, my, my industry has, uh, has a little catching up to do in terms of figuring out how to, how to tackle that particular beast. Yeah. All right. Well, that's, and that's that, was, that was, that was, that was a fantastic um, <laughs> answer and explanation and more reason why I will never run for office. Because um, then you'd have to leave, you'll have to leave New York City. Which, like, <laughs> what you learned is that when Sonia Benvita researches you, you're banished from wherever you lived. Yeah. Because of past sins. So we're, we're denied the, the of Kelly Jacobs. A chicken in every pot, an old-fashioned in every glass. It was not to be. <sighs> not to be. Yeah. I'd live in that world. I'd live in that world, man. I'm telling you. Yeah, yeah. Well, speaking of halcyon worlds, um, I wanted to bring things back to uh, to Texas, um, and at some point during the presidential, <laughs> yeehaw! Yeehaw. damn right, welcome, good lord, at, at, oh my god, stereotypes, guys, come on, yeah, um, yeah. At, at some point during the presidential campaign, um, the idea that Hillary was going to win Texas um, came up in the same way that the idea of her winning Arizona or Georgia came up, and I mean, just for our listeners to give them an idea of sort of the interesting context and where these numbers were coming up, why Hillary lost Iowa by nine and a half points, lost Ohio by eight points, lost Missouri by 19 points. She lost Texas by nine points. She lost Arizona by three and a half and Georgia by five. So I guess the question to you as, as a Texan and somebody who's following this stuff reasonably quickly, is this halcyon idea that Texas is going to flip a reality? And if so, kind of how far off is it going to be? So um, I think Texas can be flipped. I think we have a lot of work to do um, way down ballot before we see that happen. Um, part of the problem with Texas is that the Democratic infrastructure is, for all intents and purposes, non-existent. Um, that being said, we did see some really uh, some really nice shifts um, in in Texas in this last election. Uh, now, it needs to be known that Texas voter turnout is abysmal. I think we are in the bottom ten percent of the country in terms of getting people out to vote. Um, and Hillary did not spend. I remember a huge story broke. Hillary's spending money in Texas. Oh my gosh, it was it was groundbreaking, and it, and it gave us a huge, um, you know, swell of pride on the Democratic side of things. Uh, until we found out that the amount of money she spent in Texas was basically enough to buy some volunteers a slice of pizza and possibly a domestic beer, um, and that was about it. Uh, it was it wasn't a serious buy. It was it was sort of a, a thank you, um, a bit of a throwaway, you know, an encouragement to the to the team on the ground that had been working so diligently for her. Um, and you know what? They did make some some inroads. Um, of the 25 um, House seats with the biggest Democratic presidential shift uh, across the country, six were in Texas. Um, they all surrounded the sort of Houston and Dallas areas. Um, but we saw some some big shifts. Uh, Texas seven is the most notable one. Um, Hillary won this district, and it was a 22.7 percent shift from the last election. Um, Texas two saw an 18 percent shift. Um, you know, all, all the way down to the list to to Texas three, um, also northwest. I'm sorry, northeast Dallas. They saw a 15 percent uh, shift. So there is some momentum in the larger areas. Houston and Dallas um, are, are certainly seeing some some movement, but all of those Republicans won their seats handily. Um, you know, most of them by double di digits. So I, I am cautiously optimistic because I think these numbers give. The, the, the Democratic infrastructure here, a little something to sort of build on. 
Um, and certainly, um, there is, you know, every time Donald Trump opens his mouth, it's, it's a gift to Democratic uh, activists because it keeps us motivated and it keeps dollars flowing in to all kinds of wonderful causes. Um, ACLU, Planned Parenthood, um, any organization that deals in refugee resettlement, like we're seeing a lot of donations now and a lot of support coming out for, for um, typically left-leaning organizations like that. Um, so, you know, there's room, there, there's room for optimism. That being said, Texas didn't have anywhere really to go but up. So um, I don't really want to uh, incur. Success by not failing. That's my favorite. Yeah, success by not failing. A little bit. So I I think 18, uh, you know, I mean, really, Donald Trump era, all bets are off as far as I'm concerned. I mean, who who knows? Beto O'Rourke or uh, Joaquin Castro, you know, something could come out of nowhere. Mike Collier, maybe. I mean, you know, he, he ran a solid campaign a few years ago here in, here in town. Um, I mean, anything, I don't want to say anything's off the table, um, but I'm, I'm not going to have my heart broken when 18 comes and goes and we still look very similar to the way that we do today. Right, right, right. Well, you bring, bring up um, Peter O'Rourke. Um, Frank, did you want to ask about that? I think it's an. I'd like to ask about uh, the yeah, the prospects for Beto O'Rourke and get your take on that, uh, that Sonia. And also just to highlight that that is Beto O'Rourke is part of a long and strong tradition of uh, of Latino and Irish name combinations. The uh, the, be- the best of which I maintain um, is still the famous nineteenth uh, century Chilean patriot Bernardo O'Higgins. Oh my God! Only you would know that, Frank. Haggis chinchillas for everybody. <laughs> oh my God. Um, so Beto, yeah, he's, uh, he's enjoyed, um, uh, he's enjoyed some, some small, uh, notoriety in, in his part of Texas. Um, I, I, I don't know much about the man personally, other than, um, he's incredibly popular with his people and, um, he's being heavily encouraged to run. Um, I don't know how much of that though, is just that we don't know who else we would run. Um, you know, there was a little bit of noise, of course, about, you know, the Castro brothers running for something statewide, um, I know uh, Joaquin is still kind of kicking around the idea. He's been mentioning at his events lately that you know he's he's weighing and measuring, and then he'll he'll let us know in a few months. Um, but in terms of of that particular uh, U.S. Senate seat, there there is some opportunity there. Um, you know, Cruz Cruz. I mean, bless his heart, he's just so darn popular. You know, everyone just loves Cruz. You know, in 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 the Senate, in his how, in, how in could his you state. not love a face like that? He's, yeah. he's just so charming, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so. But, but here's the thing. Donald Trump made him his bitch on the national stage. Um, and now he's he's a national brand, a national brand who ran and failed um, in pretty. I mean, he held out very nicely. But at the end of the day, like he, he folded like a Russian triptych. Um, so, I, you know, I think he's vulnerable. And I think that um, particularly if we get a third party uh, candidate in this race, um, there's been some noise about it, an independent running. Um, if that could siphon off, you know, enough votes and then you get a strong candidate, um, in, in, uh, in for the left in for the, for the democratic side of things. I mean, yeah, I mean, Donald Trump world, all bets are off. Cruz um, is going to raise a gazillion dollars, right? He is. He is. Yeah. And that would presumably um, kind of freak out anybody who actually wants to challenge him. I don't know. We're already hearing rumors about him being primaried. Really? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> there's a nicer guy. My own co- my own congressman uh, is thinking about primarying him, or or that that's the the whisper that I'm hearing. I could be I could be talking out my ass here, um, but I mean, yeah, I mean he's he's proved that he can bleed, um, and once you once you demonstrate that, you know, get get some piranhas in the water, and there's uh, there's a lot of people 
I know that uh, would have some money, have some support, and and possibly even a a, a race against him. So can't wait. Looking forward to it. Twenty eighteen is going to be exciting. It's an assessment of the state of affairs in the Democratic Party when we're thinking about where can we go on offense. Well, we could go on offense in Texas. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, so some, some of this is some of this is about uh, some you know some of this is a, is about a legitimate political analysis, and some of this I suspect is all of us just being like, listen, we got to find somewhere to go on the yeah. you know go on the offense <laughs> with, with the hope that Ron Paul runs a third party candidacy against Ted Cruz. Oh, wouldn't that be exciting? So so satisfying. But on the subject of expanding the map, uh, and in this case, expanding the map a very long way, uh, (laughs) it would be remiss if we talk planetary politics. So moving from the state to the solar system, uh, you had uh, a a media tour a couple of years ago about when, uh, when the Mars One project uh, began to winnow down its uh, its field of potential candidates for as astronauts uh, to go on the Mars mission. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what is the status of the Mar- of, of Mars One, uh, the broader kind of Martian expedition, uh, and the you know what else should we be doing in space? And I think there's a sort of real question of how much of space exploration can and should be done by government versus how much is being done by private sector enterprises like potentially Mars One, like SpaceX, and some of these other things. So we're in space, the final frontier. (laughs) We are all over the map. Um, And in some ways, that's really great. And in other ways, um, it's still laughably um, myopic and and short-sighted, and we're not nearly where we need to be. Um, Just to give your um, esteemed listeners a quick background, the Mars One Project uh, as Ellie said in the beginning, is a is a Dutch nonprofit endeavor founded by. Sorry. A, um, <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> just, like by, the, just like the invasion of Indonesia, to be fair. Yeah, it worked <laughs> in the West Indies. They'll do it again. <laughs> you know, you know, patience, young grasshopper. Patience. <laughs> things could happen. It's a uh, um, it's a it's a brave new world we're living in. Um, so this Dutch guy said, yeah, I, I made a bunch of money in in clean energy. I want to go colonize Mars. Um, and he you know he crunched some numbers, you know, a little back of the envelope edition. Um, realized that it's a lot cheaper to send people up there and leave them there rather than try to bring them back. Um, and uh, and that was the idea that he ran with. And so you know the the organization opened up the application process to anyone in the world who was over the age of eighteen and spoke English. Um, um, through all sorts of hilarious hijinks and shenanigans, uh, yours truly was selected as one of 100 candidates worldwide for this mission. Um, now, I, as with um, turning Texas any any slight shade of blue, uh, I am I have a healthy uh, what do you call it skepticism, healthy skepticism about whether or not this can be pulled off. Um, truth be told, I'm not holding my breath um, because, as with any other major endeavor, they need a lot of money, and there's not necessarily a ton of faith that this can be done. Um, that being said, every every great endeavor requires huge amounts of faith, and um, you know these guys are very serious. Um, you know their board is made up by by people who are in the industry, who have worked for NASA, who have worked for ESA, who have you know been on boards for for SpaceX um, and 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 all sorts of other organizations. So you know, this is people laughed at this a bit in the beginning, you know, thinking, oh, this is just a, a reality TV stunt. You know, this guy is a total poser. This isn't going to go anywhere. And you know what? It may not go anywhere. Um, but I can't tell you how exciting it's been uh, being a part of this organization precisely for that media tour that, that I did a little while ago, because it affords us the opportunity to talk about why space exploration, space travel, and even space colonization is so darn important. It's, you know, talking about, about space and talking about STEM education and talking about um, all the amazing things that we can do when we collaborate 
Um, you know, that's, that's my wheelhouse, man. And that's what, that's what I want to be talking about all the time. And that's why in a strange way, Donald Trump has been kind of a weird, uh, yeah. He affords us a lot of opportunity to talk about how collaboration is so important and how it's really a bad idea to start judging people based on their political persuasion or their ethnicity or the God that they pray to or the color of their skin. Um, but, uh, you know, that's, that's just sort of the nature of, of space exploration, I think, um, through and through. It's, it's, it's that space is so much bigger than us and so dangerous and affords us so much possibility and so much potential um, to learn about things that we, we can't even conceive of, you know, yet. Um, you know, part of what was so great about the space race is that, you know, yeah, we got to the moon and that was cool, but look at all the technology, all the advancements, um, the economic development, um, you know, research and development of all kinds of new um, uh, medicinal practices. I mean, like there was so much ancillary benefit that came out of that, about that race um, that, that really made not just America, but the world fantastic and great and, and wonderful. Um, so that's why I do what I do. And in terms of, you know, the government having to be responsible for that kind of stuff, um, I think at the end of the day, it's going to, it's going to require all hands on deck. Um, I love NASA because they, that this is what they do. And, and I love knowing that, you know, at least half a penny of, of every dollar in, in, in taxes that I pay goes to them. Um, you know, I, they're doing big, scary, terrifying, um, enormously difficult, seemingly impossible things. And, and every time that they succeed, we're that much closer to, to our best selves. Hopefully not always. Sometimes we get the atomic bomb, but you know, what would you say is the potential for the use of Mars as some kind of penal colony? Oh dear. <laughs> because hear me out. It is a one-way ticket. Australia. If we want a permanent, if Australia has taught us anything, it's that if you want a permanent and functioning colony later to become its own country with its own identity uh, and its own extremely good rugby team, uh, then you have to begin it as a as a really super dangerous penal colony. Send a bunch of people who don't give a crap about the rules and put them all in a room together and see what happens. Yeah, yeah. basically. I don't know. That's an interesting thought, Frank. Um, I'm not going to jump on board just yet because I want to go and I don't necessarily, um, <laughs> you, don't you know, by prisoners. <laughs> hey, you know what? Happening. It's prisoners. A prisoners to Mars in 2020. For, uh, yeah, that's exactly it. Let's bring. Yeah, it might be, it you might know, get the are, Trump wait. administration to put some money behind it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, here's a weird thing. Uh, Ted Cruz, I disagree with that man pretty fundamentally on just about everything, but he was all about some Martian exploration and all about some deep space exploration. Of course, he wanted to take money out of climate science uh, to to fund all these efforts. Um, but, you know, I mean, Trump, Trump, what is Trump going to do for space? I don't know. I don't know. That's one of those other things we're going to have to wait and see. Um, he's going to coat it in Carrara marble and, yeah. uh, and gold leaf. That's what he's And gold leaf. Space. Yeah, that's what he's going to do. When you that's see his do. plans for the moon... Talk about an undeveloped piece of real estate. Holy smokes. <laughs> Luxury is not the word, oh. my friend. Yeah, it's not gonna Luxury be the stuff. it's not gonna be the man on the moon anymore. It's gonna be the goddamn Trump marquee on the moon. That is just atrocious. He'll do for the moon what he did for Atlantic City, which is to somehow uh, even more wind blasted, you know, you know, you know lifeless, bombed out the lifeless than it was before. How oh, do you run God, a casino no. where the house always wins and somehow you go bankrupt? I still don't understand it. It is a gift. This money printing machine gift. is working. Somehow we're going to have to cost everything. 
help me. My family is dying. You know, I can't, I cannot look up at the moon without thinking to myself, we put people there. You know, people have walked, we have put human beings on that stupid rock and people have walked it there. The idea of looking up and seeing a Trump logo, really, that's, that's just one to haunt the nightmares right there. (laughs) Well, there you have it, folks. No, Sonia Van Meter, a, a closet moon hater, apparently. <laughs> that actually, and that actually gives us a good opportunity to switch to our uh, lightning round, which uh, hopefully that now everyone will be listening to us on a weekly basis. This will be a regular feature when we do our interviews. Uh, so for our lightning round, it'll be three quick questions uh, for Sonia to answer. So the first one is, Sonia, what's the best book or TV show or movie you've read or seen lately? Sonia Sotomayor's My Beloved World, it was her autobiography, and it gave me all the hope in the universe um, for the future of humanity. All right. That, that one's works. amazing. That, that'll Read work. that book. That'll track. Uh, favorite drink, mm-hmm. alcoholic or not? <laughs> uh, Highland Single Malt Scotch, any brand. All right. That'll, that'll work. Um, and finally... Um, in the Trump era, uh, as we've been talking uh, earlier in the show, uh, lots of people are interested in doing something. Uh, what's an organization you're supporting and why? Uh, ACLU, for sure. Um, I was at least a few of the bucks that they raised in that magnificent weekend where they brought in you know, record numbers uh, of donations and were able to hire 200 new lawyers um, to defend uh, against that ridiculous um, Muslim ban that isn't really a ban. Um they're they're doing the Lord's work right now, and they've got a long a long road ahead of them. So I'm I'm giving them all my all my money, all my time. All right, all my, uh, all my shout outs. ACLU, it is. Uh, all right, that's our show for the week. Thank you, Frank Spring. Thank you very much, Sonia. Thank you, dear listeners. Please remember to subscribe on iTunes. Star us generally. Review us. You can do the same on Stitcher or SoundCloud. I think. Importantly, follow us on Twitter at at taking ship, and that's ship with a P as in planetoid. Uh, where you can also send us your questions and your scornful missives. Please join us next week as we are joined by another terrific guest to be determined shortly. Um, All right, Frank, where are we taking ship to? This week we're taking ship to Helsinki, where we're going to kidnap the president of Finland's dog, Lenu. Or maybe it's Lenu, but anyway, we're kidnapping the president's dog because Lenu is a Boston Terrier. Uh, He was all over Twitter yesterday. He is a tremendous dog who has done a tremendous job and is finally getting the recognition he deserves. He is awesome. Google Lenu, the president of Finland's dog. He is a tremendous, magnificent beast. We're gonna put it uh, up on our. We're gonna put it up on our go, Twitter. Yeah, I am going to. Yeah, we're going to. Uh, we're going to Helsinki. We are going to heist Lenu. Uh, I'm packing now. I have a comfortable bag for him to ride in. A bag of dog treat, a box of dog treats, and a, a jar of chloroform, which is not for the dog. It's for me. It's for the flight. Uh, so, friends, we take ship now for Helsinki.